Thank you, Caroline. You know, we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent this summer, which are is a collection of psalms that are usually pretty short. I think last week there was, it was a psalm of three verses. Next week we'll look at a psalm for three verses. And we gave Caroline the one with 18 verses with a couple of weird names in there. So thanks for reading for us. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent are songs that the people of Israel sang as they made their way a few times a year to the elevated city of Jerusalem for worship festivals. And because Jerusalem was, it's, it's a, you have to ascend up to it, it's up on a mountain, they would sing these songs as they traveled up to these worship festivals. And what I think is so helpful about these collection of Psalms, which is Psalm 120 through 134, is they remind us that faith is a journey. It's this long, arduous journey on the way to the city of God. And so it's so helpful not just to think about their experience, but for those of us who follow Christ, that we too are on this journey, this long, arduous journey to the city of God. And we need songs and we need each other to help us and to fortify us and give us courage along the way. Now, Psalm 132 is a fascinating psalm because it is a song about our need for a king. It's articulating the fact that we all need a king. Now, as Americans, we have a complicated relationship with kings, uh, to say the least, because on the one hand, we love movies and shows that feature royalty and, and kings and queens. So as Americans, we love Downton Abbey and The Crown and Game of Thrones and The Lion King. And, uh, but on the other hand, we, it's also a part of our national heritage to hate kings. I mean, this is why in the musical Hamilton, King George is, you know, kind of a buffoon. Uh, this is why every 4th of July, you blow up stuff and eat way too many bratwursts because we're, we're celebrating our declaration of independence from the kings. We're, we're independent. We've declared it. And we're going to light off Roman candles now as a, as a result. Um, in fact, if you think about this, I don't know if you've ever seen the image of the state flag for Virginia. You can Google this. You can look this up. It's fascinating. The image, this is the literal image of the state flag for Virginia. It's a picture of a man dead on his back with a crown beside his head on the ground next to him. So you've got this dead king on the ground. And standing over him with a foot on his chest is, is a woman holding a spear. And wrapped around it in Latin, it says, Sic Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants. Which is pretty obvious. We don't like kings here. And if you try to come over here and rule us, this is what the people of Virginia are going to do to you. We don't like kings. And yet, this psalm I think articulates something that if you can cut through all of our American allergies to royalty and, and kingship, it actually shows that deep down we all intuitively, in the corest, most profound part of who we are, want a king and need one. And so what I want to show you from this passage is, is really just two things. I want to show you our need for a king and the king that we need. Our need for a king and the king we need. So let's look at, uh, let me try to convince you that we need a king. And to get into the psalm, um, 
I got to do 30 seconds of just Old Testament overview, just to so that you know kind of where we are. The people of Israel, at this point in their history, you know, were just kind of a loose confederation of different tribes, and they wanted a king to bring everybody together and unite them under a kingdom. And so, God very graciously provides eventually one day this king named King David. And everything is awesome for the kingdom. There's prosperity. Things are going well. He dies and passes on the throne to his son Solomon. And Solomon even brings about more prosperity and more good times all the way around for everybody. He builds a temple in the, in the center of Jerusalem, which becomes the center of their whole public life together. And after Solomon, things kind of start to go downhill for the people of Israel. The, the kingdom gets passed on from, to his son, and then to his son, and then his son, da, 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 down the line. And eventually, things get so bad that there's this foreign nation that comes in, ransacks the city, destroys the temple, kidnaps a ton of people, and sends them off into exile. And most commentators believe that this psalm was written during this time, where they're in exile, there is no king on the throne. The whole lineage of David's dynasty is over. And so here comes Psalm 132. Look how it begins. Verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. They're, they're asking God to remember, to be favorable to David's house, to his, his, his line, his, his dynasty. They're saying, remember to act favorably. Remember the promises that you made that you're going to give us this king from his family. And so it goes through all this cool stuff that David did. I won't go into all the weeds of it, but look at verses 2 through 5. The psalmist says, hey, David made a vow to you. He promised that he was going to help build this house, this temple for you. And then in verses 6 through 8, it retells this pretty obscure story from the Hebrew scriptures about how David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, which was this huge accomplishment. The point is, David did all this cool stuff. And the author is saying to God, not necessarily, hey, God, there's, therefore we deserve your favor. But they're saying, hey, God, did all, David did all this awesome stuff. And it would be a waste if it just ended. What was the point of David doing all this stuff if there's going to be no king from, from his house? And so the whole crux of the matter boils down to this, this, this prayer in verse 10. It says, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. In other words, for the sake of David's legacy, for the sake of David's dynasty, don't turn your face away from an anointed Davidic king. Now, here's the point. Verses 1 through 10 is making this big point that the hopes of Israel were that one day, someday, God was going to bring this king from the family of David, and he is the hope of the world. And there's about 8,000 other verses I could have showed you to demonstrate that, but for the sake of time, we'll just leave it at that. Now, you may be sitting there and thinking, I don't care about any of this. I don't care about a minuscule nation 2,500 years ago that were wanting a king from the family of David. I don't care about David. This makes zero, this is zero relevance for my life. And here's where I think you're wrong, if I can say that gently. This psalm is articulating something so deep and so profound that, that their hopes and dreams were for this king to come. And deep down, all of us have that same hope and dream. For, for, for there to be this king to come and step into our world and to fix it. 
Now, you think about what a king does. A king does lots of things, but let me give you three things that a king does. A king rules, a king instructs, and a king protects. And deep down, we want somebody to come in and to rule, instruct, and to protect us. Let me show you what I mean. A king rules, meaning a king creates and gives good laws and enforces them so that there is order and there's, there's, uh, there's a structure in which flourishing can happen. And if you think, I don't want a king to rule over me, here's why I know that you're wrong. Because think of what's going on in your heart when you go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and two lanes are converging into one. And the person who takes your order tells you, I want you to go in behind the, the, the Honda Odyssey on your right, the silver Odyssey, you're gonna go in after them. And when the two lanes start to converge together and there's a car on the bumper of that Honda Odyssey and you can't get in, you panic. And you think, all anarchy is about to break loose. It's gonna be chaos, we need order. We, we, you're breaking, the whole system's gonna break down. Follow the rules. We as American modern people, we love the idea of everything's relative, you do you, there's no moral objectivity until we get into the Chick-fil-A drive through line and we want top-down authority from a 16-year-old in a Chick-fil-A visor. <laughs> Point being, it's a silly example, but in a small way that just shows you our, our, our longing for a king. We want, we, want, we want order. In fact, this is why I think we have put so much of our heart and soul into elections over the past number of years. This is why we feel so polarized as a country, why we get in awkward conversations at Thanksgiving with our family, why we have these strained dialogues over social media because everybody has different competing visions of who we want to be in power. But here's the thing that unites us. We want someone in power. We want our person in power. who's gonna make life right for us and what we think about the world. But if you step back, what are we all longing for? A king. A king rules. Here's the second thing a king does. A king instructs, meaning a king dispenses wisdom and speaks the truth about the world, that when a king speaks, you shouldn't have to go behind them and fact check everything that they're saying. They're speaking truth. Now, if you think about the way that we relate to celebrities, we elevate celebrities, we enthrone celebrities, uh, when we see a, a celebrity out in the wild, we, uh, we want to take a selfie with them. We want to get their autograph. But what's fascinating is that we also look to celebrities to, we're, we're interested in their opinions about things. We're interested in their perspective on stuff. For example, I, this had to have been in the 90s. I remember some MTV Music Awards or some Music Awards something. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. But the, I remember the Beastie Boys won an award for something. And when the Beastie Boys came up, most of the time when people get in the mic, they thank their family, they thank their producer, they, they're thanking all these people, but the Beastie Boys didn't do that. They started speaking about some political issue. I don't even remember what it was. I think it was something about U.S. foreign policy or something. In that, in that platform, they were speaking about, you know, political stuff, which at the time was very different. It was, it was strange to hear this kind of celebrity in an award show speaking about something like that, but that's so, you know common now where you have famous actors or actresses and they get go on talk shows and they want to know what you think about climate change or animal rights or whatever. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that celebrities aren't entitled to their opinion or that their opinions aren't valuable or that we couldn't stand to benefit from a celebrity's POV. My point is we 
are so desperate for truth that we look to people, we've elevated people, we've enthroned people, and we want to hear them speak truth to us about the world, even if it's something that's completely outside of their field of expertise. It doesn't matter. We are longing for someone to instruct us, which I think deep down shows you we're longing for a king. We want rule. We want a king to rule us. We want a king to instruct us. And here's the third thing a king does. A king protects. Part of what a king's job description is, is a king protects the, the people of their kingdom from outside threats and outside dangers. Uh, a king is the symbol of might and, and strength and also protects and cares for the people within the kingdom, the people that don't have a voice, the people that are powerless. A king protects their people. Let's talk about uh, gun control for a second. Now, everybody's on edge. Um, nothing like starting off <laughs> Sunday morning early with uh, controversial topics. Um, what are people thinking and, and divided over about gun control? Well, you have some people that say um, what we should do is we need to give people less access to guns because we don't want the dangerous people to get them. And then the other people are saying, no, we need to give people more access to guns so that we can protect ourselves from the dangerous people. Now, I know it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than how I'm simplifying it here, but if you put it together, what are both parties, what are both people wanting? Protection from the dangerous people. They just disagree about how to go about getting it. The point being is that all of us share this instinct towards needing and wanting and craving to be protected. Now, you put all of that together, verses 1 through 10 is this long prayer for a king to come from the house of David who can step into our real world and rule over us and instruct us and protect us. That is our need for a king. Now, let's pivot to the second half of this psalm. And let's look at, in verses 11 through 18, the king that we need. The first half really shows you, the, the, our, you know, our need for a king. The second half shows you the king we need. In fact, if the whole first half is a prayer, the whole second half is an answer to that prayer. In fact, look at, um, look at how this whole thing mirrors itself. Look at verse 2. It says, David swears to the Lord. He makes this vow. He swears to the Lord. And then look at verse 11. The Lord swears to David. Mirror image. Look at verse 9. The psalmist prays, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And then in verse 16, God promises, her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. God is answering this prayer. These two things are mirror images. And if you look at the very center, verse 11, that's where the whole thing hinges on. That's the whole crux of this particular psalm. And it is God's promise to bring a king from the house of David. Look at verse 11. The Lord swore a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Meaning, this is pretty serious. He has sworn a sure oath, and he's not changing his mind. He's not, gonna, he's not crossing his fingers. He is going to follow through with this. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And then at the end of verse 12, he, he says, one of these sons will sit on your throne forever. Like the sandlot. Forever. Now, 
That's the promise that's hanging out there. And the people of Israel, they wait and they wait and they wait. When is God going to make good on this promise? When is this great king from the house of David going to show up? And centuries later, this man named Jesus shows up and he starts walking around and talking about stuff. And you know what the first thing he, as he's opening his mouth to begin his public ministry, you know what the first thing he starts talking about is? The kingdom. In fact, here's how the New Testament begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse of the New Testament begins like this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The first line, the opening line is this big, hey, we are identifying Jesus as this long-awaited son of David. In fact, if you go all the way to the end of the New Testament, some of the last verses at Revelation 22, here's what Jesus says at the end of the Bible. I am the root and the descendant of David. And then all throughout the middle, all throughout the Gospels, people are constantly coming up to Jesus, and what are they saying? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. As Jesus rolls into Jerusalem on the last week of his life on Palm Sunday, and we have all the palm branches, what is everybody saying? Hosanna to the son of David. The Bible does not want you to miss this connection that Jesus is the long-awaited promise fulfilled, the king of kings that God has made good on to make the world right again. But here's what's so confusing. Because when Jesus shows up as this long-awaited royal king, he comes in a way that is almost preposterous. It's almost laughable. Because he, is, he does not show up in a palace born to royalty. He shows up in a barn born to peasants. And as he goes about his ministry, he doesn't form an army to fight. He forms a group of followers to serve and to heal and to preach. And as he goes into Jerusalem on the last week of his life, he doesn't roll in on a white horse there to conquer his enemies. He shows up on a donkey, a beast of burden, this, this humbling, humiliating thing, not to conquer his enemies, but to be conquered by his enemies. In fact, you might remember this later in that week as Jesus is arrested and captured by the Roman soldiers. Do you know what they do to him? After they beat him up and spit in his face and laugh at him, it says that they put a purple robe on him. Purple was this sign of royalty. It was the color of royalty. And they, they fashioned this crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. And they, they're, they're dressing him up in this grotesque version of what a king is, and they're just laughing at him. They, they, they bow down and they say, oh, hail, king of the Jews. Look at, look at your great king. This is your hope for the world, this pathetic joke of a man. They blindfold him and they punch him in the face and they say, hey, Mr. Know-it-all, Mr. Omniscient, who hit you? Just laughing at him, making a mockery of him. They hang him up on a cross and they watch him suffocate and they watch him bleed out. Now, how in the world can that be the king that we need, a king that is weak, poor, dies without a penny to his name, naked, just a bloody pulp of a person? That's our hope? That's the king that we need? How does that make any sense? Well, think about it like this. 
if Jesus had showed up in strength and he showed up as a general, as a conqueror, and he said, follow me, be like me, well, then you know what? Only those people who were strong would qualify. Only the, you know, Spartans, only the Navy SEALs would get in. The rest of us would just be without hope. If Jesus had showed up and he was this good, religious, moral teacher, and he said, here's the truth, devote yourself to these things, believe these things, well, then only the spiritually strong people could get in. Only the morally strong people could get in. Only the people who were wise or spiritually attuned could get in. But when Jesus shows up, not in strength, but in weakness, suffering, dying, that means anybody can get in now. The people that are weak, the people that are screw-ups, the people that are failures, the people that are moral outcasts, the people who can't get their lives together. If Jesus said, hey, here's the standard, jump up here, well, then we're all kind of without hope. But he lowers the bar so much, he says, I'm going to do everything on your behalf. All you have to do is receive it. Anybody can do that. Anybody can open their hands and simply receive it. And in fact, I don't know if you noticed this when I read or when the psalm was read before, how many times the phrase, I will, shows up. It's just this over and over avalanche of promises that God makes to say, I will do everything necessary. All you have to do is receive it. In fact, look at verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. He's the provider. We are the receivers. Now, I'll end with this. Final thought. There's this amazing passage in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation is weird. It's a, it's a trippy book, but it's amazing. If you go to Revelation chapter 5, the author John is told to turn around and to look at the Lion of Judah. You know, a lion represents strength. It's this image of, of might, of authority, of kingship. And when he turns, he does not see a lion, but he sees a lamb. This little, weak, innocent, vulnerable, cute little lamb with its throat slit and dark, black, matted, dried blood running down the front of its chest. And you look at this whole picture and you think, man, this is so messed up. What in the world is this? But then you begin to see what this is saying. The authority and the strength of Jesus is expressed and revealed through his self-sacrificing love. That is his strength. That is his power. And it looks so weak in the eyes of just brute force. I mean, every other king on the universe, if they want to enforce their rule, they use cruelty and violence and power, not Jesus. He shows up in weakness and he gives his life away. And when you begin to, when that begins to make sense to you, that he became weak for me, he became poor for me, he left heavenly glory for me, 
that's what starts to conquer your heart. It looks so weak, so pitiful, so pathetic, and yet it has the power to not only transform your life and your heart, but to transform the life of the world. He is the king that we need. He is a king that shows up and gives himself for his enemies. He's a king that shows up not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He is the king that rules us by the command to love. He is the king that instructs us in the very words of life. He is the king that protects us by defeating sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies on the cross. He is the king we need. And so the invitation for you this morning is pretty simple. It's to surrender. It's to bend your knee to King Jesus, to give up your right to rule your own life. And Jesus says, when you lose your life, when you bend your knee, when you surrender your life for me for my sake, the great promise is you will find it because he is the king of life. He is the king that looks so weak and pitiful and yet has the power to transform the world. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see the, the mysterious beauty and wonder of our crucified and risen King, that we might be so compelled by the beauty of him coming in weakness that that would overthrow our hearts. Would you conquer us in a new way that we might love you in deeper and more obedient ways and we might love our neighbor in more deeper and obedient ways. Help us to walk the ways of our King, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.